Matthew chapter 20, reading from verses 29 to 34, finishing the chapter. And as they were leaving Jericho, a large crowd followed him. And behold, two blind men sitting by the road, hearing that Jesus was passing by, cried out, saying, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. But the crowd sternly told them to be quiet. But they cried out all the more, saying, Lord, son of David, have mercy on us. And Jesus stopped and called them and said, what do you want me to do for you? They said to him, Lord, that our eyes be opened. And moved with compassion, Jesus touched their eyes. And immediately they regained their sight and followed him. As we we think about these, these verses, let's just consider Jericho a little bit. Jericho is one of the oldest continuously occupied cities in the world. Archaeologists would take it back nine or 10,000 years. I'm not sure the flood account would, would allow for that, but it's, it's been occupied for a very, very long time. Jordan, or Jericho rather, sits on a, a small plain about six miles east of the Jordan River, west of the Jordan River, my apologies, and east of, 19 miles east of Jerusalem. The city is 850 feet below sea level. Uh, the city of Jerusalem is, is 2,500 feet above sea level. So there's a two-thirds of a mile difference in elevation. Uh, in scripture, you'll frequently see the phrase, they went up to Jerusalem, and that was literally true. Jerusalem sat uh, at the, uh, the eastern edge of the Judean mountains up on a hillside, Mount Zion, was where the original uh, city was located. And everybody went up to get there, but you especially went up from Jericho. Jesus and his disciples had probably spent the, uh, the, the Saturday evening in Jericho on their way to Jerusalem for Passover and his final week, the week of his teaching and his death, his resurrection. As he leaves the city, a large crowd follows him. They are uh, a, probably a different crowd than the crowds that had been typically following him through the, the months. Those crowds were often aimless and uh, probably noisy and chaotic and shouting. These crowds are not simply there for Jesus. They're there for Passover. They're on their way to Jerusalem for Passover. Their focus would have been that time the importance of that journey. Now, you, you might know that there are 15 psalms that are called Psalms of Ascent, from Psalm 120 to Psalm 134. They're, they're fairly short. The average length is about eight verses. Um, they were traditionally sung by pilgrims who were traveling to Jerusalem for the feasts, for, especially for the high feasts of Passover and Pentecost and Tabernacles. Uh, they would begin singing that final day's travel into uh, Jerusalem, and they would end at Psalm 134 in the temple. Psalm 134 is very brief, three verses. It says, Behold, bless Yahweh, all you slaves of Yahweh, who stand in the house of Yahweh by night. Lift up your hands to the sanctuary and bless Yahweh. May Yahweh bless you from Zion, who made heaven and earth. Uh, if, if you change Yahweh back to Lord, as most Bibles say it, 
then you get the old chorus, which was one of the first songs I ever learned as a Christian. Behold, bless ye the Lord. All ye servants of the Lord, lift up your hands in the sanctuary and behold, bless ye the Lord. As the pilgrims left Jericho that morning, they were anticipating finishing at the temple with that psalm. But they would have begun with Psalm 120. The first verse of Psalm 120 says, In my distress I called to Yahweh, and he answered me. In my distress I called to Yahweh, and he answered me. I, I went on to uh, Google Earth yesterday, and you can, you can drop a little guy, a little yellow guy, and, and look at it from a street view and see from that point of view. And I, and I did that on the southern side, uh, kind of the southeastern side of Jericho. And as you look north, there's just nothing. It's flat. As you look east, there's nothing. It's flat. As you look south, there's nothing. It's flat. It's just that plain. But as you look west, you see the hills rising. The hills, by the way, if you've been up by center and vertigree, those heights of hills are not high mountains. Dry, dusty, desert, rocky, brutal. That's what, that's what the crowd, that's what Jesus and his disciples see. That's where they see the two men sitting by the road. They're just on the outskirts, probably, of Jericho. And so Jesus and his disciples, the crowd, they're leaving the city. As they leave the city, they begin to sing. And these two blind men hear those words. In my distress, I called to Yahweh, and he answered me. And I think that then the blind men did what the psalm says. They cried out to Jesus. Hearing that Jesus was passing by, they cried out saying, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. The crowd sternly told them to be quiet. Shh, stop that. Stop crying out to Jesus. We're crying out to the Lord. But they cried out all the more saying, Lord, son of David, have mercy on us. We need to remember this. We remember that, that the blind... And in fact, all disabled people at that time were at a huge disadvantage. Nothing accommodated them. Nothing was made for them. These men had endured a lifetime of suffering beyond simply being blind. They'd endured suffering and hardship and poverty. There are no schools. There's no trade schools. There's no Braille. There's no seeing eye dogs. There's no... There's no provision made for travel. The roads at that time were difficult. The Roman roads were well known for for being flat and wide. They were they they were eight typically eight to ten feet wide, which which doesn't sound like much to us. That's one lane, but that was actually enough for two wagons to pass side by side. They were wider at the corners. They were made out of stones and bricks. Relatively flat, relatively durable, but if you're blind, risky. But this this trail that existed, the the so-called road from Jericho to Jerusalem, uh, most of the time it followed what's called a wadi. That's a Middle Eastern stream bed that's dry. And at times it it, it would rise upon the, the the side of the hill where there was a steep drop-off. 
there's a, a video on YouTube, a couple that have an account called uh, Sergio and Rhonda in Israel. They're a young couple. They're, they're Christians. And they film, they film things there. And, and uh, several years ago, Sergio and an American pastor that he knew and a friend walked from Jericho to Jerusalem. I think it took them three days. And it was brutally hard for them. Brutally hard. Hot dry, dusty. The, the total elevation gain from Jericho to Jerusalem is two-thirds of a mile, but it's probably a mile and a half or two miles of climbing because of the up and down of the hills. If you're blind, you cannot tra- traverse that by yourself. Somebody would have to lead you almost every step of the way. There's no social security or welfare or disability for these people. The law called for Israel to have storehouses, Everybody was required to bring in every three years a tenth of their produce and put it in the storehouse for the sake of of widows and orphans and and the poor, and that would include people who are disabled. 400 years before this in Malachi 3, God rebukes them. You've not brought in the food into the storehouse. And he's not euphemistically saying you're not bringing money into the church. He's literally saying you're not bringing food into the the pantry. There's a community pantry that provides for these people, and you're, you're not bringing it in. And, and that's why I've stricken your agriculture. That's the, the verse that's so often quoted out of context by the faith movement. Test me in this. Prove me in this. See if I'm not right. You give as I've commanded you, and see if I don't give back to you. See if I don't cause your crops to flourish. But they'd not done that. They hadn't learned that lesson. One commentator that I, I read said storehouses were almost non-existent in Israel in the first century because so many people were poor, there was nothing to put in it. I don't think that the, the, the promises made to national Israel apply to the church today. I don't think that we can say if we give, God is beholden to give us money. But he'd made, he'd made promises to national Israel. If you will live according to my law, I will bless you. And part of that blessing would have, would have been huge productivity in their agriculture. And they didn't do that. These men are being shushed by the crowd, but they just kind of aren't even aware that the crowd is there. In, in their darkness, it, it seems just to be them and Jesus. So Jesus stops. And he calls them and he, he says, what do you want me to do for you? Which on the surface sounds like an odd question. Well, duh, they're blind. But you've got to understand these men are beggars. That's what they've done. That's how they've, they've paid their way. And maybe all they would want from Jesus is money. The reason that they're there, we're not told this in scripture, I'm speculating, but I think it's a reasonable speculation. The reason that they're there at the side of the road on the first day of the week at Jericho on the side of Jerusalem is that thousands of people are going to be passing by. And it's good pickings for beggars. Even if only a small percentage of people give you something, you can probably pick pick up enough to live for a month or two. And so Jesus stops and he gives them his undivided attention and he asks them what they want him to do for them. I I wonder what you would ask for if you suddenly had the undivided attention of the Lord of glory. 
right before this passage begins in verse 28, Jesus says, the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. And now he stands before them. I want you to think about this. He stands before them in the posture of a servant. What do you want me to do for you? You've called. What do you want? I think you could reasonably translate this, what is your wish? He takes on the role of a servant. As he would in just a few days, by the way, when he would remove his robe and wrap a towel around his waist and wash his disciples' feet. He takes on the posture of a servant. So if Jesus suddenly stood before you and spoke like a servant, what do you want me to do for you? What would you say? We need to remember that Jesus is both God and man. And he continues to give his children, his, his people, his undivided attention when we call upon him. There are many in our world who insist that we need to pray to the saints. That's true, certainly with Roman Catholicism. It's also true with Anglicanism. I've had Lutherans tell me that you need to pray to saints. They're not good Lutherans, I don't think, but they're Lutherans. The two arguments that I most commonly hear when people say that are, first, Jesus is really busy. Everybody's talking to him. And the second is, other people in heaven have more influence than you do. If you ask me to do something for you, I might do it. But if you got my mom to ask, I'd be more likely to do it. Catholics have said that. If you just ask Jesus, he might do it, he might not. But if Mary asks him, really? There's one time in scripture where Mary asks Jesus to do something. They're out of wine. And what does he say? Woman, what do I have to do with you? Doesn't sound like a lot of influence to me. See, that kind of an attitude is an insult to the nature of God, the nature of Christ, and the character of Christ. By nature... He's not confused when we pray. If every human being on the face of the earth right now turned to him in humble, true, believing prayer, his ability to hear each one and respond would not be taxed at all. He wouldn't strain at all. He would never turn to you and say, I'm I'm sorry, Donna was talking. What were you saying? And beyond that, his character is such... And because of his grace and his mercy, nobody has any more influence than anybody else. Nobody has a greater access to the heart of God than you do. Nobody. Nobody. The floor at the foot of the throne of God is level. I don't know how the Lord does it, but we're all the same distance from him. Nobody's closer. They say to him, when he asks, what do you want me to do for you? They say to him, Lord, that our eyes be open. So they focus on on what they perceive at the moment to be their greatest need. It's their blindness. They want to see. They don't want money. They don't want food. They don't want pats on the head. From that point of view, they don't even want pity. They don't want somebody to feel sorry for them. They want somebody to do something. 
Their blindness is not a blessing. It's not a gift to them. Blindness in our time is not just an inconvenience. I can't imagine losing my hearing, although it's not what it once was. I've got hissing going on all the time. There's always hissing in my ears. Too much loud music. And losing my hearing would be an inconvenience. That'd be hard. That'd be hard. Losing the ability to walk would be a challenge, even in our day. But to be blind? I read for a living. Everything that I preach on Sunday is based on what I've read. I read for a living. Well, in in their day, blindness was not just an inconvenience. It was a constant risk to their security and survival. They couldn't go any significant distance by themselves. They certainly couldn't go from Jericho to Jerusalem by themselves. They may not have been able to go from one side of Jericho to the other by themselves. The streets are small. The buildings don't move. All of that's true, but there's always people. There's always animals. There's always children. There's wagons. There's always things that, are, that put us at risk. Their blindness is at the very root of their suffering, and so they ask that he would take it away. Verse 34 says, Jesus is moved with compassion and touches their eyes, and immediately they regained their sight. He's moved with compassion. The order of things in Scripture is is really important. The the truth of Scripture is not a series of ideas. And, And the Spirit of God said to Matthew, here's the ideas I want you to communicate. You figure out how to do that. He's he's. He's controlled and governed every word. And so the fact that compassion follows their request, I think is important. We're not told that as soon as these two men came into view, Jesus was moved with compassion. We're told that it was when they cried out to him in faith that he was moved with compassion. God's compassion is not automatic, and it's not universal. It's so easy to prove that to you. The triune God will not feel the slightest bit of pity when he casts Satan into the lake of fire. None. No regrets when he casts the demonic realm into the lake of fire. None. There's no indication in Scripture that the Lord will be weeping in grief when he casts wicked humanity into the lake of fire. He will carry out that judgment objectively, truthfully, righteously. Not in a rage, not in this uncontrolled fury, this explosive, destructive anger. It'll be judicious. But let's not think that God will be aching for eternity because of what he had to do to the wicked. He won't. There's simply no sign of that. There's simply no indication of that. That's because he is not an unwilling slave of his own nature. He never says, I wish I didn't have to do this. 
because he determines who he is. You and I don't get to determine who we are. We don't get to determine, to be honest, what kind of music appeals to us and what doesn't. Linda will tell you that, that uh, and, and probably my kids too, certain pieces of music can play and I get teary-eyed. They just touch me. That has that effect on me. There are a lot of other people that don't have that. I can't control that. It's not that I turn that on and, and I, have to, I, I can't turn that off either. When I study, the room has to be like this. No sound. I can't have music going. If music's going, it occupies my mind. It has to be quiet. I can't turn that off. I can't change that. God is in control of his own nature. He determines what his nature is. Right? So he says to Moses in Exodus thirty-three nineteen, words that he repeats in, in Romans 9, 15, I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will be compassionate to whom I will be compassionate. He's in control of who he shows grace to. He's in control of who he shows compassion to. He cannot be compelled to be compassionate. You cannot live your life in such a way that he won't have any choice but to be compassionate. He's in charge of that. What I find to be very interesting is in the, the Hebrew of Exodus 33 and the Greek of Romans 9, I will be gracious and I will show compassion. Both of those are actually verbs. I will gracious whom I gracious. I will compassion whom I compassion. So he doesn't even say, I will feel gracious toward, I will feel compassionate. He says, these are actions that I take, and I'm in full control. So Jesus is moved with compassion. When? Not when he first saw them. But when they call out to him in humble, honest faith, that faith, as is true of all genuine faith, has been granted them by the Holy Spirit. At this moment of time, when they hear Jesus is coming by, the Spirit births the faith in them to say, you know something? He's Lord. He's the son of David. And he is the source of mercy. And you could no more stop them from crying out than stop the people from crying out as we get into... The, the triumphant entry, it's, we're not told that in Matthew, but we're told in the other Gospels as the people are crying out, Hosanna, son of David, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. The Pharisees came to Jesus and said, stop them. And Jesus said, if they don't cry out, the rocks will cry out. This has to be recognized. You couldn't stop these men. The Spirit of God had granted them this faith and this confidence that Jesus is the Lord, that Jesus is the son of David, and that he could, if he was willing, heal them. If he was willing. And in turn, Jesus touches them and healed them, and they instantly regain their sight. True miracle. God's power is fully exercised for them in an act 
of recreation. We don't know why they were blind, but he rebuilt tissues and structures. He reconnected nerves. He corrected errors in their eyes or their optic nerves or their brains or all of the above or more. And when it was complete, it was perfect. They didn't need eyeglasses after. They didn't need dark glasses to shield them from the sun until they got used to it. You go to see a movie for two hours in the middle of the day and come out, you're, you're blinking. None of that. They're simply seeing. They had been blind as though they had never seen. Now they see as though they'd never been blind. As a work of the Holy Spirit within their lives. And they call out and Jesus touches them and they're healed. So what do they do? Well, think about this now. The world has just opened up to them. There's the sky above them. Maybe it's blue. Maybe it's partly cloudy. Maybe it's dark and rainy. But there's the sky. There's the ground around them. There's the city and the, the wadi that they're, that they're sitting at, at next to the, the, the road. And, and there's that little town of, of Jericho. And as they look to the west, they can see the hills. They can see the rocks. They can see that dry, dusty swirls in the air as the, as the breeze blows. There's the birds. They've heard them. Now they see them. There's maybe animals around. There's the crowd. Look at the crowd. They all look the same, but they all look different. They're the same, but they're not the same. They could, have, they could have taken a week and just looked at faces and noticed how different faces are and how remarkable that was. They see their own hands. They see their feet. What do they do? They follow Jesus. Their new sight enabled them to do what so few wanted to do. They followed Jesus. Jesus didn't stop and sit and eat with them and go through everything that had happened, he just kept going. He keeps heading west. He keeps on that trail, on that little narrow path leading up into the foothills, heading west toward Jerusalem. He just keeps going. And they follow him. They don't follow the road. They don't follow the crowd. They don't follow the disciples. They follow Jesus. They, they, they stay as close to him as they can. And they follow Jesus. Now, I, I, you may not know this, but I have questions all the time that I can never find an answer to. I get that every single week. It's not uncommon for me to spend two, three, four hours on something in the process of sermon prep trying to answer something that I just don't find an answer to. And I had that this week. See, verse 34 says, they regained their sight and follow him. And verse 1 of chapter 21 says, and when they had approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage at the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples. He just healed two men. Now, let's, let's explore this a little bit. I'll, I'll give you some insight into my thinking process. He just, right before this with the, with the two men, he had just rebuked James and John for wanting a field promotion. Make us the two most important people in the kingdom next to you. And he might have said, hey, you two, you want to be important? Go get a donkey for me. 
could have been. Could have been any pair of disciples. I'm not good at math, but I found a website that tells me with 12 disciples, there's 66 possible pairs. Peter and Andrew, Peter and John, Peter and James, Peter and Philip, Peter and Matthew, Peter and 66 possible pairs he could have sent. But couldn't he have sent these two men? You followed me. You've set me in your eyes. You've set me as, as your aim in life. Now use your sight for my glory. Bring the donkey and her colt to me. I couldn't find an answer to that. There really isn't an answer to give, but I think it's possible. As we bring this home, there's, there's two things I want you to be considering. First of all, we are saved for the sake of trusting and obeying Jesus Christ. It's, it's described here as following. They followed Jesus, and I just think that it was more than casual curiosity. God has done a work not only in their eyes but their hearts. What I found interesting, though, here's another area of study that I, I was able to trace out. The word follow is virtually never used of Christians in the epistles. Once Jesus was no longer physically present to follow, the word follow simply does not describe the Christian life. We do see it a couple of times. In, in things like Paul saying to Timothy, you have followed my example. But most of the time it has to do with negative things. You, they, they're following their desires. They're following false teaching. Instead, the, the, the word that we see is walk. We see the word walk 50 times plus. And the word run 10 times. Running is just walking with more intensity, after all. The word walk is used in the New Testament to describe most of the time how people live their lives. It's your walk. How's your walk going? I'll ask people. How's your life in Christ going? Are you living in him? Are you obeying him? To, to run in that sense, I guess, would mean living in Christ with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. You and I have been delivered from sin in order to walk with Jesus, to run with him, to follow him, in order to obey him and trust him, in order to work out our, our salvation with fear and trembling. That's the purpose for which we are saved. These men were not, were not saved from their blindness simply so that they could go about their lives. They were saved from their blindness as a sign of God's mercy on them and what happened in their heart. And they were never the same. The second thing I want you to consider is that these two blind men did not prefer their blindness to sight. What a stupid thing that would be. Do you want me to hear? Jesus asked the man in, in John 5 at the, at the pool of Bethesda, do you, want, do you want to be healed? The guy doesn't say, no, I'm good. He complains that there's nobody to help him get in the pool and there's all the competition and Jesus heals him. But of course they want to be healed. They didn't defend their blindness. They didn't want Jesus to affirm it. They wanted him to treat it as a cancer, as an invader. They wanted him to destroy it as an enemy so that it could never return. And many today in our time are living in spiritual blindness, and they prefer it to sight. They don't want Jesus to open their eyes. They want to continue to live in the darkness and have him call it light. 
Jesus talked about this in very sober terms. John chapter 3, verse 19. This is the judgment that the light has come into the world and men loved the darkness rather than the light for their deeds were evil. The light is not an idea. The, the light is not hope. The light is Jesus. Jesus saying the light has come into the world is equivalent to him saying, I have come into the world. I am the light of the world. So, the light has come into the world, and men loved the darkness rather than the light. Jesus has come into the world, and men loved their sin and wickedness more than Jesus. Because their deeds were evil. What does that mean? Because there is an inherent understanding that is suppressed, that if you come to Jesus, your sin goes away, and they love their sin. They don't want their sin to go away. They don't want to be freed. They would rather remain blind and keep their sin than receive their sight and be freed from sin. They're so committed to their sin that they hate Jesus for wanting to cleanse them of it. I have to tell you, this overwhelms me. I don't know what to do about that. I don't know how to respond to that. It's a silly, uh, it's a it's a silly illustration, but part of what's what has helped me with my diabetes of staying on a good diet is recognizing that stuff that has sugar and carbs and starch in it wants to kill me. It's poison to me. Might not be poison to you. Awesome, eat up. We go to a Mexican restaurant. You just knock back that bowl of chips. I don't. I really don't care but it's poison to me. And I can't imagine somebody saying, I don't care that it's poison. I don't care. We know that people do with diabetes. I can't imagine doing it with sin. And how do you persuade people that those sins are killing them? They say, but this is who I am. It's like, but that's not who you are. But this is who I am. That's my identity. It's not. You've invented that. It's killing you. It's literally killing you. It's sending them into judgment. And I have to acknowledge that I simply have no power of persuasion. I can't convince people who don't want to be convinced. There have been a couple times in my ministry career where I've been filling out questionnaires. And they, they ask what your weaknesses are, which I hate. Because it's like, well, you want them in alphabetical order or chronological order. I don't even know where to start. But what I usually end up answering is, I don't know how to motivate unmotivated people. I don't know how to open blind eyes. I don't know how to raise dead hearts. If somebody doesn't care, I don't know how to convince them to care. If somebody cares, I can work with them. I can teach them. I know that. But I can't make them want to care. I can't make them want to care. I don't know how to do that. And I, I feel that lack, especially in evangelism, especially in our time with the hatred of holiness, the hatred of righteousness, the hatred of Christ in our time. And some of you are nodding, so you get that. You understand that. You see it. I, I experienced it at the mission. Dakota is agreeing. You experience it at the, at the mission and at the jail and at other places. 
And if, if the Lord came to me and, and offered to give me any gift at all, I think it would be the gift of being able to open the heart of somebody who doesn't care so that they would receive the gospel. Here's my comfort. It's in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. We have this treasure, Paul says. We have the gospel. We have this treasure in earthen vessels. That's us. Weak, fragile, polluted, not strong, not glorious. We have this treasure in earthen vessels so that the surpassing greatness of the power when sinners believe and are converted will be of God and not from ourselves. We have this treasure in earthen vessels so that God gets the glory for saving sinners. Second Corinthians 4, 7, if you're looking for it. And because of that, we can be afflicted and yet not be crushed, confused but not despair, persecuted but not feel forsaken by God, struck down by the world but not destroyed. Because we are always caring about in our body the dying of Jesus so that the life of Jesus can also be manifested in our body. See, the same Jesus who saved me can save any other sinner. He didn't need any help saving me. He did that. Others spoke to me. I heard others preach. I heard others talking about Jesus and some good evangelism and some bad evangelism. And that's how all of that goes. But when the moment came to open my eyes, he opened my eyes. And he didn't just open my eyes and give me a tickle and say, you know, I should look into that one of these days. He opened my eyes like he opened C.S. Lewis's eyes. C.S. Lewis said one moment I didn't believe. And the next heartbeat I believed. It, it wasn't one moment I didn't believe and the next heartbeat I thought, well, that's kind of interesting. And then a year later I thought, well, that's kind of got some evidence. I went from not believing to being fully persuaded. That's the promise that we have. See, that's the work of God. My part and your part is to simply firmly and faithfully and kindly and gently and unswervingly share the gospel. You can't open somebody's eyes, so don't try. Don't compromise. Don't try to sell the message. Don't try to make it more palatable. Remember Robitussin? Oh, that's wicked. That's just wicked stuff. Robitussin's just nasty. I don't think we ever gave our kids Robitussin because it it's just so foul. There's no way to make it taste better. There's no way to make the gospel taste, taste, taste good to somebody who's dead in their sins. He, he's, he's already said, Paul has, in uh, somewhere in here, I can't lay my eyes on it right now. But he, he's already said to uh, to those who are being saved, we are the aroma of life. The gospel of Jesus Christ is the aroma of life to those who are being saved. But to those who are dead in their sins, it's the aroma of death. 
The gospel that you love and that you preach, when you share it with somebody who's dead in their sins and the Lord is not at work in them, it's like opening a casket a month after. That's what they smell. How can you make them like it? You can't. They have to be transformed. That's God's work. Our job is to share. His God is to transform. Or his job is to transform. Father, we thank you for that. We thank you that we believe because of your work. We don't believe because we were smarter, because we were better, uh, because we were more faithful. We believe because you chose to be compassionate to us. It's our desire that you would be compassionate to all. It's our desire that you would have mercy on all. And I suppose that the motivation of our hearts should be longing to see that compassion and mercy and grace at work so much that we're constantly testing and looking for it. We're constantly sharing the gospel, looking for signs that you're at work because we want to see you at work. We want others to receive what you have given us. In the process, Lord, as with so many other things, would you help us to understand that it was never our work that brought us to you and it was not the work of somebody else that brought us to you. It was your sovereign grace. You require us to be faithful. Help us be faithful. And Lord, we lift up, do lift up those who don't know you. We all have people who don't know you. They don't live in the light of Christ. They don't walk with you. And we long for you to grant them sight. The Spirit of God had done a work in these two men, Jesus, before you spoke to them. And we ask that you would be doing that work in those we love. That your mercy would be poured out upon them. In the meantime, help us to be faithful and to trust you each step of the way. And we thank you, Jesus, in your precious name. Amen.